you have your copy of God's Word, I do invite you to turn with me this morning to the end of Genesis 8. Uh, This morning we will conclude chapter 8 and begin chapter 9. You can also find the text for this passage on the insert inside of your bulletin, along with a brief outline of today's message. This morning we are going to see the response of both Noah and of God to the flood. We have been looking for the last several weeks at the flood account, and we've seen how God has provided and protected Noah and his family. And here, as he steps out onto dry land, he reacts. And the way he reacts is with and through thankfulness. He, in reverence to God, reminds us of everything that has been said of him in his true character, in his true form. Yet again, Noah acts righteously. And God also responds in our text. We're going to see that not only does Noah respond to this situation, but God does as well. As well. And we're going to see the making of, or the beginning of the making of, a covenant with Noah and with his family and mankind as a whole. And God, he makes promises to withhold his wrath in this particular way and also reestablishes his command to be fruitful and multiply. Through this exchange between Noah and God, I want us to be on the lookout for cycles of death and life. You may see the way I've outlined the passage this morning and think that's an odd division. I mean, in some ways it is. Um, In other ways, uh, the chapter and verse weren't present in the original text. Um, And I see three cycles of life and death before us in our text today. And I see them interwoven to um, give a a point, um, to give specific emphasis on where we will conclude this morning. And all of this is wrapped up in this great act of judgment that we have just seen, uh, the act of the flood that cleansed the earth of sin and um, brought judgment upon all those who rejected God. With that in mind, please turn with me this morning to our text as we read for ourselves the response of God and the response of Noah to the flood. I'll begin in Genesis 8. Uh, chapter or chapter 8 verse 20 Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma the Lord said in his heart I will never again curse the ground because of man for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. 
from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. The grass may wither and the flower may fall, but the word of the Lord will stand forever and will accomplish everything he has set out for it. Let us once again go to our Lord and ask for his guidance and wisdom upon this time. Dear Heavenly Father, unless your mercy comes down upon us, through your Holy Spirit, and opens our eyes, our ears, and our hearts. We may hear your word today, but we will not receive it. And so we ask, we plead with you now, O Lord, open. Open us that we may put this truth deep in our hearts and that we might recall it as we wake and as we lie, as we walk by the way. May it be as frontlets to our eyelids. May it be on the door frames of our house and on the posts of our gates, so that it is ever before us. Lord, we need you. We need your word. And in your providence, you have provided this text for us this morning. And so we ask expectantly, Lord, reveal yourself to us in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. As we mentioned last week, trials are opportunities to draw us closer to God and to refine our character and we again affirm the character of Noah here as the first action he takes is to build an altar and make a sacrifice of burnt offerings unto the Lord. He really did place his hope and his trust in God alone, and that's evident in this action. And we also see this text and come to realize something about God. God makes several promises to Noah. We'll see just a few of them today, and Lord willing, next time uh, we pick up this text, we'll see the sign of the covenant and what is truly meant for mankind. But in, in reading these promises and knowing God is a promise keeper, we have to come to understand our Creator better. God's consistency in truth, otherwise known as verity, is absolutely essential to our faith and to the very gospel that we proclaim. As we read through this covenant-making process, we should take great relief in the fact that it actually is a reestablishing of the covenant made between God and Adam and Eve. God is reaffirming right worship with him and his promise to allow mankind to be fruitful and multiply. Today, I want us to see three truths that we can apply as three actions to shape our worship and our understanding of God. First, I want us to see God is pleased with biblical worship. Hence, we must worship God biblically. Verses 20 through 22. Secondly, I want us to see creation is a blessing from the Lord. Chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. Thus, we should glorify God through creation. And then finally, I want us to see that murder is an assault to the image of God. Chapter 9, verses 4 through 7. Henceforth, we must protect life and celebrate it at all cost. Three truths that must shape our worship and our understanding of God through this covenant-making process. Let us begin by focusing on the end of chapter 8 and see that God is pleased with biblical worship. 
And that's exactly what we see. The first action Noah takes as he exits the ark is one of worship. He has spent the better part of the past year and and a year and some days on the ark, keeping the animals alive and trusting in God's provision. Now, at the end of that cycle, he takes several of the clean animals. Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. His first action was to sacrifice the very things for the past year he has fought to keep alive. And he does so in um, what will come to be known as a burnt offering. And this is an offering unto God where the totality of the animal is sacrificed. It's burnt completely. Not a portion is set aside. It is 100% given to God. We've mentioned this before, um, but these burnt offerings will become a commonplace for Israel. It's one of the first offerings they will be taught to give. It'll be given in um, sacrifice for sin. It'll be given as an understanding of your need for God. It'll be a plea unto Him, Lord, save us. And we need to appreciate as we think about that and um, we think about what Noah is doing, that God gave him exactly what he needed to give this sacrifice in the first place. God presupposed this sacrifice by calling Noah to save extra animals that were clean. He could not have sacrificed some of the clean animals if there were not some of the clean animals to sacrifice. God assures us that this sacrifice would be pleasing to him because he planned it out. How did he get the wood for the altar? Some argue that he cut down trees Others say that he took pieces off of the ark itself and used it as an altar unto the Lord. Either way, God gave him the wood and the stone needed to build the altar. God gave him the animals needed to offer as a sacrifice. And then as a response to God providing everything to and for Noah's worship, God says it's good. Verse 21, and when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, God was pleased with the offering from Noah. God is pleased with us when we worship him according to his word, even to today. We hold to the regulative principle of worship, meaning we worship God as God has commanded in his word in no other way. Because we know he's pleased by it. What's the best way to please your creator? We'll worship him as he has given you. What was the best thing for Noah to do? To worship God in the way that God had given him. God set up this act of worship to be a pleasing worship. And it's interesting. um, If you look at this verse, you could also translate um, the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma as the Lord smelled the aroma of rest. When Noah offered the sacrifice, and and let's go back a couple of chapters, what does his name mean? Rest. So when Noah, whose name means rest, offers a sacrifice of rest, God acknowledges it and proclaims this in his own heart. I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. 
Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Noah's sacrifice leads God to make this declaration of rest against the level of judgment that we have just seen. Now, we need to answer an important question. Does this mean Noah changed God's mind? And the answer to that must be no. No. Noah carries out an ordinary act of worship, an act of worship in celebration to God and who he is, an act of worship that is normal to Noah's own personality and his own character, and yet it had divine implications. How can I say that? Well, I can say that for four reasons. One, Noah did not name himself rest. He would not know that his name would mean the very thing that God declares this. This act of worship was an act of rest by the man who was named rest. Noah did not name himself. Two, Noah did not know how many animals to put on the ark. God told him. He didn't know he needed extra clean animals to offer a sacrifice. God told him, this is what you will do. Three, Noah did not know the action it would cause. Noah sacrifices because he loves his God. And he offers this offering unto God simply because God is worthy of it. Not to have God declare his restriction from flooding the earth. And then four, and I believe most convincingly, the text says, the Lord said in his heart. He never told Noah. He didn't declare this to Noah. We read it now because it has been given to us, or it was given to Moses. Moses wrote it down through God's eternal decree. And so Noah, as far as we know, does, does not know that God is not going to flood the earth in this way again. And yet Noah carries out this ordinary act of worship that has divine repercussions because God planned it to be so from the beginning. And so why do we worship today? Why do we worship God in prayer and in song and in confession and in offering and in of reading the scriptures and of, uh, Lord willing, in a moment, taking of communion? Because God has commanded it and declared it. Well, what will be the repercussions? What will happen as an action? What will happen in heaven because of our worship today? I don't know, other than God will be pleased. And whatever actions takes place, it will be a part of his divine plan. We're not changing the mind of God. We are being obedient, and he is changing our hearts. It's this beautiful mystery of God's eternal and divine plan. And an extra benefit and bonus Think about this. Noah didn't get it, but we do. We get to read it. We hear what Noah was not given. God promises to never curse the ground again because of man. The ground was originally plagued by Adam and Eve's sin. This will continue. God didn't say, I will remove the curse from the ground. He said, I will not add to it. Further, God is promising never to flood the earth again in such a way. The flood affected all aspects of normal life from season to temperature. All things that were normal got put into turmoil in the flood accounts. Everything would have changed. And God said, from there forward, seasons, times, temperatures, dates, all of these things will come and go as the Lord declares it. And all of this is given to us because of and through the right worship of God by Noah. Noah did what was right before the Lord. He 
through a sacrifice, an offering of death, petitioned God for life. Because the animals died, God made a promise to maintain order and not increase the level of judgment upon the world. Through sacrifice, there was peace. We see this not only in our first section, but also in our second. God's word, the creation itself, is a blessing. It is a blessing unto him and for us. Let's look at our second section to see just how much creation is a blessing from the Lord. The first three verses of chapter 9. And it's here that we pick back up that, that God speaks again. He speaks to Noah. He speaks to Noah's family. We shift from the internal thoughts of God to the audible, the declaration by God. And what you really get, and I alluded to this earlier, is a retelling of the commands, the uh, promises made in the original creation, with a few notable exceptions. God says here, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens. Upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea, into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. God calls them to be fruitful and multiply. This is a retelling of the promise made to Adam and Eve, to that command, be fruitful and multiply. They would be able to have families. They would be able to repopulate this is something we don't need to, to make light of and simply skim over because think about what would have been weighing on their hearts. The last time God made this promise, it led to the flood. The last time God said, be fruitful and multiply, the earth became so corrupt that he wiped it out and basically started over. And so for God to tell them here, you will be fruitful and multiply, this is an enormous blessing from God. And, and God saying to them, I will grant you life and life after you and life after that. I will fulfill my promise that you women will have children, that you will give birth. And that you will continue generation after generation. But there are things that are different. So this promise to um, repopulate the earth, this promise to be fruitful and multiply is the same. But there are differences. And, and specifically, there are differences as it relates to man's relationship with the animals. Here, from here forward, things will be very different. There is division. The fear and dread of mankind shall be upon all that walks on the earth. This will not be like it was in the garden. In fact, what God is saying here is he's really saying, I'm going to subdue the animals. The relationship will be so different that I'm going to have to restrain them for human life to continue. It will become dangerous. It will become difficult Calvin uh, notes this in his commentary. Whence does it arise that a serpent will spare us unless he is repressed? Whence is it that tigers, elephants, lions, bears, wolves, and other wild beasts without number do not rend, tear, and devour everything human except that they're withheld by this subjection as by a barrier? Therefore, it ought to be referred to the special protection and guardianship of God that we remain in safety. It is only by God's mercy that the animal kingdom does not take us over. 
They certainly got the tools needed to do so. But God says and declares, The fear of you, of mankind, shall be upon the beast, and you shall continue to rule over it. Remember the original promise, have dominion over this world. This is a retelling of that, but in a different form. Things will be different. Because of sin, and because of the way things are now, it will be very different. An aspect of that dominion that is made clear in our text is that we shall now have those animals for food. And I have to admit at this point, there is a great debate. Um, one of the, the biggest debates I've read so far in Genesis past the creation days right here. Because could people eat animals before the flood? Most commentators say no. Most commentators look at the creation account and say that animals and mankind were vegetarians. Calvin says yes. Calvin believes that you could eat animals before the flood. And God saying here, these animals are now for you food, is a reestablishing or a declaration of these things will continue. But even Calvin admits he's in a minority here and won't come to a conclusion if you press him. He actually says, I won't give you a conclusion in his commentary. So, we find ourselves wondering, could they eat animals before the flood or could they not? Well, the answer in some senses is it's irrelevant. We're after the flood. But, if this is new... If this is a new promise that you now can eat of the animal kingdom, this would mean the taking of life, the taking of an animal life, now promotes life. Their death provides life for you. By eating of an animal, you get the nutrition and the sustenance that you need to live. By death, there is life. And life would come at a price. This would have been seen in the sacrifices before uh, the flood. We know that they were sacrificing all the way early as Cain and Abel, but we're unsure whether they could eat it or did they offer it. Was it all an offering when you took the life of an animal? Um, was it used as tools and such, but not as nourishment? We are unsure. But at this point, at this promise, where we are in the text, God is providing for mankind through protection. I will protect you from the animals and I will provide them for you for food. God, remember, he was the first one to take the animal's skin and use it for clothing. Noah, as we see in our text, offers animals as a sacrifice. And God further tells them from here forward, use these animals as food. And I want you to notice something that I find even more beneficial than the debate about can you eat the animals or not. In all of those promises... God doesn't have to create anything. God never makes anything new. He doesn't have to go, okay, you need a category of food, so let me go and create something real quick. No, God created the animals that post-flood would be used for food from the beginning. God knew in his eternal plan through his providence that they would need this sustenance. God's plan did not need to change because the circumstances were different. And Noah did not have to know the plan in order to fulfill it. Noah 
didn't have to know that these animals would provide food for him to carry them on the ark and carry them safely. All he had to know is God said, carry these animals. Noah acts in obedience and is blessed because of it. And he doesn't have to know about the blessing to act in obedience. A lot of times we get wrapped up in our own Christian life and our walk and even in our day-to-day interactions, we're quick to go, what's in it for me before I will do that? What am I going to get out of it? Why? Before we take an action, before we take a step. And a lot of times when it comes down to it, and, and as a parent, I'm terrible at saying this because I am your parent. Why? Because that's, you don't need to know why. It doesn't even matter. Just do it. Sometimes that's how it is with God. We, we want the why, we want the why, we want the why, but isn't it enough that God says it? Isn't it enough that God says, worship me, to love me, to serve me, to submit to me, that even if we don't know the blessing, it, it doesn't matter? And the beauty of it is God actually gives us the blessing. Remember, we are reading what Noah did not receive. Noah did not hear God's internal thoughts. Noah did not get to see the rest of the picture. He didn't get to realize what would happen because of this. We are called to obey God and worship and see everything he's given us is, an, is a blessing. Creation itself is a blessing and it was part of the plan from the beginning. Unfortunately, as things continue and we're looking at it from this point forward perspective uh, with the flood, the flood really marks a turn uh, in humanity one thing doesn't change, and that's sin. And specifically, uh, the sin of murder. Let's look at our last section to see how murder itself is an assault to the image of God. The temptation to commit murder would remain. This was a prevalent sin before the flood and an identifying feature of the line of Cain. If you've been with us for some time now, you know that they were known by their sin of murder. Cain was repulsed by it, but later on his descendants would be praised because of it. And yet, and because of that, God puts restrictions. God puts restrictions on how we treat the animals, and God puts restrictions on how we treat one another. Listen, verse 4. You shall not eat flesh, remember the animals, with its life, that is its blood. The Jewish people would be forbidden to eat the blood of an animal. They would have been or would have been required to be intentional in preparation of animals for food. They wouldn't be able to quickly go and devour something. It would be a process now. I'm giving you this to enjoy, but I want you to think about it as you do it. You're going to have to clean this animal. You're going to have to thoughtfully prepare this animal. You're going to have to make sure that there is not blood present as you partake of this animal. Because in the blood there is life. Remember that, people of God. In the blood there is life. And every time you take a life, you're going to reflect on that before you partake of the blessing. And this would set them apart. Other uh, people of this region would not take such care. And again, we, we hear a blessing of God. We hear them God teaching them, in the blood there is life. And also we hear God teaching them, you are separate. You are other. 
You are my people. You will not be like the world. We could go to Leviticus. We could read in there the animals that they could not eat, the, the cloven animal that does not part the hoof, uh, the, the grasshopper, the, the hopo, which is a type of owl, um, all of these things uh, that the Jewish people could not eat. Why? Because God said, do not do this, and that would make them different. It would set them apart. Set them apart for who? For God. God was setting them apart for himself. And he does that through warning them about the blood. This would impress upon them the sacredness of life. It is a serious thing to take the life of an animal. We mustn't do so without regard to the animal. For they were created by God and were given to man for his good. And as we learn now, for food. And this is really just setting the stage for how man was to treat man. I'm telling you to keep the level of dignity to animal this high so that when you see that and you realize that's the floor for how you treat other mankind. If, if animals have to be treated this way, how much more do we treat one another? And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it of man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning to the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. To intentionally take the life of another human being in malice would require death. Man is made in the image of God. And so to assault another human being is to assault what God has made and declared good. God takes murder very seriously. One out of ten commandments. He could have told us a lot of things, but commandment number six, thou shalt not murder. And before the flood... This was reckoned by God. Murderers received God's wrath by God. But here we see another one of those shifts. Now man will play a part in that reckoning. Man will share in the responsibility of preservation of life. Now, this does not mean we are called to go vigilante style and take out bad people. The, the punisher is not someone to idolize and to model your heroic life after, if you even know who that is. But it does mean we are called to elect leaders who biblically and with conviction take the act of murder seriously and promote life and preserve it at all cost. This gets really complicated and there, it needs more discussion than we really have time to give it. But suffice it to say... Unless you can prove biblically that this law is abolished in God's word, we must seek to uphold it as a community. And God really is blessing man in this. I know it's a heavy passage and it's, it's a heavy command, but God is really blessing man. He's telling them, man, you will now play a part in judgment. As part of your bearing out my image, you will take part in my judgment. You will carry the weight of the sword those who were elected over you. And our larger 
catechism states, this isn't just about the death side. Um, I love the larger catechism for this, um, and I would highly encourage you to devotionally read through the section on the Ten Commandments, because it will state the negative, thou shall not, and then state the positive, thou shall. And um, question 135, um, what is required in the Sixth Commandment? I actually don't have all of it quoted here, but it says this, the duty required in the Sixth Commandment are careful study, lawful endeavor to preserve the life of ourself and others, by resisting all thoughts and purposes, subduing all passions, and avoiding all occasions, temptations, and practices which tend to the unjust taking away of any life. We must protect life at all cost. We must promote life at all cost. And I would be remiss to not include here, this most certainly includes life in the womb. The greatest travesty that is facing our society today, that the place that life should be protected and cared for at the greatest and highest degree is where it is disregarded and tossed aside without second thought. We, as people of God, must worship Him properly, and in doing so, we must protect and preserve life. Life is precious. Blood must not be spilt needlessly whether through animals or by mankind. And this warning is simply setting the stage for what would come through Jesus. By the time he comes to earth, by the time he enters our humanity, the Jewish people would have had a clear understanding about the importance of taking a life. The decision to crucify Jesus was a weighty decision. What he had done had to have amounted to high treason, treason of the highest order. And even then, it's questionable if life could be reckoned. And make a note, and, and make no mistake, the Jews are, are cowards here. They don't do it. They can't do it. They can't take his life. They get the Romans to. They had no regard. The Jews themselves would not take or shed the blood of Jesus Christ, even as they said he was a blasphemer. But Jesus knowingly sacrificed himself. Jesus gave his own life knowing that life is sacred, and knowing that life comes from the blood. It's why we sing songs like hymn 307, nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. He died that we might live. He understood better than any of us the purpose and the preciousness of life. It's why he wouldn't give it up. It's why he would rebuke someone after he healed them, after he cared for them, after he loved them. He said, do not proclaim who I am. Do not tell. My hour has not come. He could not die until the appropriate appointed time. Why? Because his blood was precious. It was salvation. It was redemption. It was a sacrifice for you and for me. Prophet, priest, and king. We proclaimed earlier in our confession Jesus knew that in our hearts we have all committed murder, murder, hatred of one another, hatred, even some to the act of physical murder. We deserve the death penalty. And so he took our place. You shall worship me properly, and if it comes to it, there will be life for life, because it is precious. Looking at the life and sacrifice of Christ, we see all three sections of our text. 
Sacrificial offering done with a right heart is good and pleasing to God. It's commanded in His Word. Jesus acts as a perfect sacrifice on our behalf. Because we are in Him, we are blessed. We're told to be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over creation. This can only be fulfilled as children of God acting on His authority. This was given to us in Christ if we but trust in Him with faith. And in the death of Christ, we see the warning to not take the life of another needlessly. Jesus died that those who trust in Him might live. His sacrifice was an offering to cleanse your hands of murder. By His death, you and I are made righteous. Death is serious and should not be taken lightly. Let us contemplate this now as we prepare for the Lord's Supper. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, just as we cannot remove the stain of blood from pure snow, so we can't remove our sin from our own lives. It has stained us and marked us for death. But though our sin is great, though it may be crimson, you do clean it through the sacrifice of Jesus. I pray that we understand that life is sacred and precious. That you call us to worship you. You call us to protect life. You call us to not take anything for granted, this world and all that you've given us. But to seriously weigh that in our thoughts and our actions and our deeds. May we trust in you each and every day, each and every hour. And be with us now, O oh Lord, as we consider what it took to buy our freedom from the death that we rightly deserve. We pray all of this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.